0: The reading from God's Word is taken from Hebrews, and it's I'm reading chapter one, and that can be found in the Church Bibles on page one thousand two hundred and one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful hand. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son? And again when God brings his firstborn into the world he says let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun he says your throne O God will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set about above you your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not the all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation.
1: Father, thank you that you've spoken to us through your Son. We pray now that as we come to your word in the book of Hebrews, that you will speak to us again, and that you will strengthen us Give us endurance and joy as we see the glory of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So I'm very excited uh, to be beginning this new series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's an absolutely extraordinary book towards the end of the New Testament, uh, but it is in many ways a slightly strange book. Um, Before we go any further... We're on page 1201 uh, of the Pew Bibles. It will really help us if you can uh, have your Bible open there. Uh, or perhaps when you came in, you were given one of these. Um, these are freely available, um, Hebrews scripture journals. We're going to be working our way through the book of Hebrews uh, over a series of months. And maybe that you want to take notes as we go along or you want to uh, record your thoughts as you uh, read Hebrews on your own or in small group and keep all your notes together. Uh, well, do grab one of these and uh, and use it to, to keep your notes and your thoughts in as we go along. Uh, If you're using that, then we're on page 8, Hebrews chapter 1. Easier to find, at least. Now, Hebrews, it's tempting to think of it as a letter. It's it's lumped together with other letters in uh, the New Testament, but it doesn't start like a letter. There's no introduction. There's no greeting. At no point does it say who it's from. There are things at the end that are a bit like letters. If you turn with me just to the end at chapter 13, uh, just a few pages over, uh, you'll see that there are some, some greetings at the end, particularly uh, in uh, verse uh, 23. Uh, he talks about uh, our brother Timothy having been released from prison. That uh, is presumably the Timothy to whom Paul wrote the books that are just slightly earlier in the New Testament, the letters that, that Paul wrote to him, uh, one of Paul's travelling companions. He's been in prison. He's just been released. That's a a personal thing. They obviously know Timothy uh, and they know the writer, uh, and he sends greetings. But it's not really a normal letter. If you look at verse uh, 22, uh, he says this. This is of chapter 13. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. Um, which feels to me like the end of every sermon I've ever preached. Bear with me, I've been much briefer than I might have been. Yeah. Those of you who are regulars at BH, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the writer kind of gets to the end of, uh, of this book and says, bear with me. But he really describes it as a sermon, this word of exhortation. That's a, a kind of phrase that, 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 that means a sermon, something that's preached in order to get a response. Because this book, Hebrews, is probably theologically the most sophisticated book in the New Testament and possibly in the Bible. It is subtle. It is carefully argued. There's a thread that runs the whole way through. Uh, It shows in great detail just how it is That the whole of what God has revealed in the Old Testament of Scripture is about Jesus and how he has fulfilled everything in detail. Well, it really is a short word then compared to what it might have been, but it is extremely dense and it is extremely sophisticated. But it's not a theology book. It's a sermon. And all the way through, and different commentators will sort of assess it differently, but the writer keeps breaking off, that is, how many times he does it, but it's at least six or seven times he breaks off to say, right, look, this is why I'm telling you. So the first time he does that is chapter 2, verse, verse 1. If you just turn back with me to page 1201, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, To what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. We must pay careful attention to what we've heard of Jesus so that we don't drift away from him. That's his great concern, is actually how people respond to Jesus. Uh, and um, you can pick up quite a bit as you read through the letter about who it's being written to again it's, it's not addressed as a letter we don't know exactly who it's to we definitely don't know who it's from and don't let anyone tell you otherwise there are lots of theories about who wrote Hebrews one of them is probably right but no one knows which one it is <laughs> but the people he's writing to they might well be in Rome Rome seems like a quite likely location Uh, And uh, they have suffered persecution. They've been publicly ridiculed. Some of them have been put in prison. Some of them have suffered by being associated with people who were put in prison for their faith. They've been publicly humiliated. They've been imprisoned. They have lost their property. They've had their property confiscated for being Christian. And though it hasn't happened yet, which means that this is probably early in Nero's reign, although that, again, no one knows for sure, Although it hasn't happened yet, none of them have died for their faith. But the writer expects that some of them will. So being a Christian for them is not an easy thing. They're suffering. They've been persecuted. They've been humiliated. They've been impoverished for following Jesus. And the writer wants to show them the glory of Jesus. The writer wants to show them why he is of surpassing value. So even if they take your house off you, if you've still got Jesus, you haven't lost anything that's anything like as valuable as him. But it's not just that they're being persecuted. They're also just in danger of growing weary. They've been Christian a long time. You can tell that from from the letter. This is a well-established Christian community. Uh, And he can refer back to the days when you joyfully embraced Jesus. And he says, you're in danger of growing weary and losing heart. Uh, A big section of the book or the letter, the sermon, whatever you want to call it, focuses on the people wandering in the wilderness and and growing tired and giving up on God refusing to hear his voice any longer And, and the rest says to the people that you're like them you're weary you're wandering through a wilderness and the danger of giving up is real So all the way through the letter, there are these exhortations, these moments where the writer, if you like, kind of leans over the pulpit and says, listen. In fact, there's a phrase that occurs in Hebrews more than anywhere else in in, in the New Testament, the phrase, let us. So it's interesting. He's he's not the sort of preacher that wags a finger at you and says, right, this is what you need to do. This is a preacher who says, let us then. In fact, he says let us so often that, that one wag uh, said that the book of Hebrews, uh, he, he took a sort of gardening metaphor and said the book of Hebrews is the let us patch of the New Testament. But let's just take a look at one of those and we'll see the sorts of things. that there, there are two particular kinds of encouragement that the, that the writer offers, uh, two particular things that he wants people to engage with and they're in chapter 4, a, a good example of them is chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 14 to 16. Let me just read it to you. Talking about Jesus, he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin so there's the first let us in chapter 4 let us hold firmly to Jesus let us hold firmly to what we've been taught let us hold firmly to the faith we profess why well Jesus has walked this path before he has suffered he has been humiliated he is able to empathize with our weakness and he's been tempted just as we are but he didn't give in so let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. That's the first kind of thing, uh, the first kind of encouragement, uh, and that's what we saw in chapter two, verse one, isn't it? The hold on language. Let's cling to the faith that we profess, says the writer. Let's not let go. Let's not drift away in the language of chapter two, verse one. Let's not walk away from Jesus. Let us hold firmly so hold on that's one kind of encouragement in the book and the other is press on so that's verse 16 of chapter 4 let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need it's a plea to spiritual growth to saying let's press in to Jesus Let's grow in our faith. Let's let's approach God's throne of grace. Jesus has opened a way to God. So let's approach. Let's pray. That's uh, very much on the writer to the Hebrews agenda is let us be people who pray, who go into the holy place of God and bring our needs to him in prayer. So he says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So hold on because Jesus is worth it. Uh, And uh, if you're a weary Christian, uh, the the writer says, Jesus is the one who can give you rest. Jesus is the one who, if you're a a, a persecuted Christian, a, a, a dispossessed Christian, Jesus is the one who can lead you into a glorious kingdom and into sharing his glory. So hold on. And press in because there are great riches in the Christian life even now. We have access to God in prayer and in worship. So press in to Jesus. Don't miss out on what is yours now already. So hold on and press in. Well, we're not going terribly well with chapter one yet, are we? So we probably better get there. But I think now we see why The writer begins as he does. There's no kind of greet so and so or hello, it's been, you know, here's a postcard from from such and such. This is the opening of a sermon. In the past, he says, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In the past, God has spoken. Now, he's saying that what comes through Jesus is better than anything that's come before. That's the great theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Now, what's come through Jesus is better than anything that's come before. But in the past, God did speak in all kinds of ways, through Psalms, through prophetic books, through history books that we find in the Old Testament. God spoke through intermediaries, people, prophets, who spoke to the people. Uh, And Hebrews is not to do any of that down. In chapter three, he will say in verse seven, uh, of the Old Testament, today, as the Holy Spirit says, God continues to speak through that word, but the word he has spoken in his son is of a different kind altogether. Not fragmented, not given in many parts, but totally united, singular. He has spoken to us by his son, And he's going to tell us seven things about this son that set the tone for the whole letter. And when I say Hebrews is dense, I mean it is condensed. So verses two and three of Hebrews chapter one, you know how you can get fruit juice at the shop and then you can get concentrated fruit juice at the shop And now, wonder of wonders, what a time to be alive. You can go and get a little thing about that size of ultra-concentrated fruit juice that you can squirt into your cup and you can kind of carry it around with you so that you never have to drink boring old water ever again. Well, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, and particularly verses 2 and 3, are like the sort of ultra, ultra, super-concentrated story of the universe told in the story of the sun. Seven things we learn. Here's the first. This is the son whom he appointed heir of all things. That is that everything that exists belongs to this son. He is the heir of it. So God the father is his father. This son is the heir of reality. The universe is rightfully... His. And before the creation of the world, God appointed his son as the heir of all of it, as its rightful owner. One day it will come into his possession. So he is the heir of all things, uh, and uh, he has been appointed heir of all things because through him, God also made the universe. So nothing, this reminds us of, sort of John chapter 1, the, the reading we hear at Christmas, that uh, without him, nothing has been made that has been made. Through him, God made the universe. So everything that has been made, everything that exists apart from God is the joint project of the Father and the Son together. So the Father and the Son working together made reality. Reality. That's who we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus. Through him, he made the universe. Now, that's appropriate for the Father and the Son to be so closely associated uh, in the creation of everything. Because the Son is the radiance of God's glory. So it's almost as though the Son, Jesus, is the glory of God made visible. Now, I don't think we think about light in exactly the same way uh, as someone living in the first century reading this would think about light. Uh, But if you've got a candle or an oil lamp burning in your house, there's the flame, the light itself, and then there's the radiance from that light. And the two aren't really separable or distinguishable. The radiance is the means by which the light gets into the room, if you like. But if you take away the flame, there's no radiance, But you cannot have the flame without the radiance. The two go completely together. And the son is so completely connected to, related to the father that he is the radiance of his glory. It is by him that the father's glory is seen. They're inseparable. They go completely together. And so this son is the exact representation of of God's being. Now, the language here is the language um, of um, sort of stamping faces onto Roman coins. But that can get you confused because if you think, well, if I look at a coin, I know that that's not an exact likeness at all. It's, it's a kind of rendering in, you know, in 3D relief, but it's not that's not what King Charles looks like, is it? But actually, that's not the the picture that's being used in in terms of of stamping a face on a coin. It's how exact what appears on the coin is relative to the die, to the thing that's being stamped down. Does that make sense? So what he's saying is that the being of the Son is identical to the being of the Father, to the essential nature of God. God's own being is found in the Son as much as it's found in the Father. He is everything the Father is except Father. And so fifth thing, he sustains all things by his powerful word. So the the son by whom God has spoken to us is a son who speaks and his speech is vital to the ongoing existence of reality. So we've been told that through him God made the world. What we're being told now is that he sustains the world. That nothing exists unless he speaks it into being. And continues to speak it into being. He continues to uphold the universe. It's the language of being, kind of driven along on its course. History is in his hands. But nothing exists that he doesn't hold in existence by speaking. Everything depends on this Son. Everything depends on His Word. Now, an obvious response to that is listen, isn't it? And that's chapter two, verse one. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. This one who is speaking, this son, Jesus, his words have such power that the universe is still there. Uh, I find a a helpful way of thinking about that is imagine the biggest thing you can think of, the, 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 the most solid thing In all your experience, if you have lived outside the UK, then you might be able to think of a mountain. Uh, If you're from the UK, then mountains—well, we maybe call some things that, but you know, they're not real. Um, But you know, think of a a great hill, something solid, something that you know—it's so—it's such a serious thing to encounter that you know the idea of being able to move it is kind of a mythical idea. The idea of being able to move a mountain. You know, press against it in your mind. Imagine trying to shove it. It's going nowhere, it's solid, it's real. And yet what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us is that if Jesus stopped speaking for a moment, it would just disappear off into nothing. It would fly off to the four corners of the universe. Nothing holds together without him. And if that's true of mountains, it's true of me, isn't it? And it's true of you. that actually every breath you breathe, every beat of your heart, is a gift from him. And everything you encounter in your life owes its being to him. Now if you haven't thought about the world like that, imagine the difference it would make if you believed that there is no power in the universe like his power and that every power you encounter whether you possess it yourself or whether someone else wields it over you is a gift from him and is answerable to him the sun is magnificent and glorious and beyond your imagining. That's what the first five things tell us. And then suddenly, everything shifts. Here's the sixth thing. After he had made purification for sins. Now, when I talk about this being incredibly condensed, incredibly concentrated, we've had five things speaking to us of of his work in eternity of how everything owes its being to him, everything relies on him and depends on him, and then suddenly, almost sort of thrown away in just a few words, when he had made purification for sins, and much of the argument of the book of Hebrews from this point on is about what he did when he made purification for sins and and, and what that means for us. But he's talking about how the Son of God became a tiny human baby, lived a human life, was utterly humiliated, judicially murdered on a cross. That's how he made purification for sins. This great exalted one became tiny, became the lowest of the low, was humiliated and dejected and destroyed. It's quite a shift of gear, isn't it? But we don't stay there very long At this point in the book, because then he says, when he had provided purification for sins, number seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, for the writer to the Hebrews, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his exaltation uh, to heaven, his ascension into heaven, and his seating at the right hand of the Father in heaven, they're all of one piece. They're the sort of enthroning of the son. So no one sat in the sanctuary of the temple except the king. And now here we see one who sits at the right hand of God, who sits on a throne, who's in heaven, who is glorified. So Jesus always was glorious and yet in some way there is a new glory. Glory. So, verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And there is the, the sort of trick, the question, the, the sort of nub of the issue for the whole book of Hebrews is this. How can the one who is by nature the heir who is by nature the son be appointed heir be appointed son how does he come to inherit what was rightfully his anyway but in humiliation that is the mystery at the center of Reality, it's the mystery at the center of the book of Hebrews. The exalted one is humiliated. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of the fact that actually his exaltation now is because he was humiliated, even though he ought to be exalted by right? Well, this discussion about angels that follows, which to our ears is mostly pretty weird, I think, is something like, hang on, how have we suddenly switched into talking about angels? what 's going on? well part of the reason is that uh, the writer 's argument in, in verse uh, in verse five revolves around uh, psalm eight so so the writer's If if there's one verse that's a sort of one book, one chapter that's a theme for the whole book, it's probably Psalm 110, uh, which speaks of the exaltation of the Messiah, of the King, uh, and speaks in verse four of Psalm 110 about being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Don't worry, we will get there. Uh, But it's all very curious. But here, in quoting Psalm 8, he talks about how humanity is lower than the angels, and the Son became a man, became lower than the angels, chapter 2, verse 7. But now he is above the angels. And so how is it that a man is above the angels? Well, partly it's because that man is truly the the, the pre-existent son of God, but it's also because of what he's done. Uh, And so uh, there are four different comparisons to the angels in verses uh, 5 to 14, uh, and we'll, we'll whiz through them uh, he's mostly quoting from the Psalms, a little bit uh, from uh, 2 Samuel, but, and possibly from Deuteronomy. Uh, but here's, r- r- rather than sort of going back and, and looking at those verses, we don't really have time to do it, I'll just show you the shape of the writer's argument, okay? So four comparisons. Here's the first. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father? That's Psalm 2. That's uh, quoted uh, by the apostles in Acts chapter 4 to say Psalm 2 is about Jesus, Look, they're all about Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us. Uh, But you are my son. Today I've become your father. To which of the angels did God ever say that? Which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, you're my heir? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The answer to that question is none. So Jesus has has a higher status, a higher name than the angels because none of the angels has ever been called son. And then when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So angels are like the, the sort of pre, pre, preeminent agents of worship. They live in God's throne room and they worship him day and night. That's what the scripture tells us about, about angels, that they serve in the presence of God himself. They are the preeminent agents of worship. They worship continually. But they are not objects of worship. So when God brings his son into the world, he says, let the angels worship him. He is an object of worship, but the angels are agents of worship. Uh, then, at verse seven, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment... You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. You remain the same. Your years will never end. Two ways in which uh, what he says about the angels in verse 7 are contrasted with the sun. So angels are made, they're creatures, uh, and they're described as, as, as winds and flames of fire. Well, the sun is not a creature. That's clear in, in, in verse uh, 10 and 11, isn't it? That, that actually... Contrasted with the creation, with the entire universe itself, uh, the sun is permanent. He laid the foundations of the earth, and in the end, he will roll the earth up like a garment and, and the heavens. The whole universe is almost like a disposable thing compared to him. Now, the angels belong to the creation, but he is unchanging. So the thing about flames and fire is that, and and, and winds, is that they are constantly changing things. They 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 exhibit change in a in a very profound way. That change is kind of part of what it means for them to be them, flames and, and fire and winds. But He is permanent and unchanging. So He is exalted above the angels because He's not a creature; He's the Creator. But also because He is the ultimate judge of what is right. And the reason he's the ultimate judge of what is right, so your throne will last forever, a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom, here is the one who is going to judge everything completely justly, is that he's loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He's actually been there and done it. He's made the choice. We're going to hear time and again as we go through Hebrews how he's been tempted but without sin. How he has chosen to suffer uh, on behalf of his people so that they can justly be forgiven and received as God's people. So both who he is and what he does set him apart from and above the the changeable angels who are ministering spirits. And then finally, to which, verse 13, if the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's where he introduces Psalm 8, uh, which is going to come up in chapter 2. But he is completely exalted and one day all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet and then verse 14 he actually brings it all home to us like this are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation we were made lower than the angels just as the son of God himself became lower than the angels And yet, God's entire economy through the whole history of the earth and of the universe has been devoted to your benefit. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. The angels may be made higher than you, but God has made them to be servants for you, to serve those who will inherit salvation. The Son of God is rightly the heir of everything. He made it all. It belongs to him. But he was humiliated to raise you up. God himself has become a servant because he loves you. So, for the weary Christians in Rome, let's say, suffering for their faith, weary. wondering if it's worth carrying on we're given this incredibly condensed version of the story of the universe in which the son goes through humiliation but emerges through it to exaltation that you can have every confidence in him because he is enthroned in heaven but also the humiliation you experience now for being a Christian and some of you in your workplaces are experiencing that, I know it People actually look down on you, maybe even think you're dangerous because you're a Christian person. It's not something that feels easy to talk about in public so much anymore. Yes, I follow Jesus. Yes, I believe what he says in the Bible. They're not so different from us in many ways, though they suffered much more. But Jesus has been there and gone through it But there's glory at the end of it. It is the structure of how God brings glory is through enduring humiliation. So are you weary? It is Jesus who can give you rest. Are you anxious that maybe it's not worth it? Jesus is already enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Are you worried that maybe it's not good? That maybe the sorts of things you hear said about the Christian faith, that it's oppressive, make you wonder whether following Jesus really is a good thing to do? Well, it's, No secret that the church, from time to time uh, throughout the world and throughout history, has been an agent of oppression. But it's hard to see this Jesus as the agent of oppression, isn't it? Because he's been exalted through his humiliation, he's given everything up for the sake of those he loves. There's so much more we could say but I think I'm getting past my chapter 30. chapter 13. Bear with me at points. So look to Jesus, hold on, press in. That's the message that Hebrews will keep bringing us back to. Jesus is greater, he is better, he is worth it. Don't give up.